said I What will be, will be Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and I ran into a little whatever will be will be last time myself when my overview of The Man Who Knew Too Much turned into its own episode. But I'm back, finally kicking off Season 2 of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. So let's settle in and sit by the fire as the rain comes down outside. It looks like it's going to be a wet Saturday. Here's Hitch as the camera pans from our familiar logo to a sign on an easel that says, moved to new location. And then the pan continues to Hitch stretched out on a shelf, a tea set beside him. Oh, good evening. I'm so glad you found me. As you can see, our uh, new quarters are rather modest, but we like the location and thought the change might do us good also. And now, if you don't mind, I would like to indulge in an old American custom, no matter how busy they are or what the surroundings may be. Americans never omit this quaint ritual. If you don't care to join me, I think you'll find our play is about to begin on one of the lower shelves. The camera pans down and fades to the titles. Except that, according to Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, what we've just heard off my DVD is an alternate narrative. The original one is just the same until it gets to... And now, if you don't mind... And continues with... The time has come for what has become an institution for Britishers, even for those who have been permanently exiled to the barbarous regions of the world. Oh, speaking of institutions, here is an American one. It is called a commercial. So here's Wet Saturday, first broadcast on September 30th, 1956 starring Sir Cedric Hardwick and John Williams. Teleplay by Marion Cockrell, based on a story by John Collier, and directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Let's get all of our regulars out of the way, which in this case turns out to be everybody listed except Cedric Hardwick. This is John Williams' fourth episode out of ten, after The Long Shot, Back for Christmas, and Who Done It. His next is The Rose Garden, episode 12 of season two. This is Marion Cockrell's fifth of 11 teleplays, after Into Thin Air, Santa Claus, and The Tenth Avenue Kid, There Was an Old Woman, and Who Done It. Her next is Conversation Over a Corpse, episode eight of season two. This is the second of seven Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one Alfred Hitchcock Hour episodes, either based on the stories of John Collier or with a teleplay by John Collier, After Back for Christmas, episode 23. His next is Demortuous, episode three of season two. And this is the fifth of 18 directed episodes by Alfred Hitchcock, After Revenge, Breakdown, The Case of Mr. Pelham, and Back for Christmas. His next is Mr. Blanchard's Secret, episode 13 of season two. Our scene opens 
on a group shot, four people in a room, a fire in the fireplace. Two women, older and younger, are on a couch, the younger one crying. Two men, older and younger, are standing. The younger is back to us, looking out the window at the falling rain. We'll soon find out that the older man and woman are the parents of the younger man and woman. The younger woman's name is Millicent. The younger man's name is George. We never do find out the first names of the older couple. They are only mentioned as Mr. and Mrs. Princey. And did I mention the falling rain? Yes, it's called Wet Saturday for a reason. We'll have the sound of rain throughout. But there looks like there's something serious going on here. So let's find out what it is. Be quiet. They'd send her to an institution or they'd hang her. We should have a move away from here. It would be impossible. I myself. Oh, dear. Oh, what shall we do? Poor Millicent. Oh, Millicent, how could you? The Pie Lady is back at pieladyanthology.wordpress.com, if only briefly. And she does a nice job of demonstrating how we are slowly fed information through this conversation. And she points out that at this stage, we know Millicent has done something bad. But what did Millicent do? George, come here. <laughs> Over here, you idiot. You want me to shout across the room at you? Now, how far did you get with your medical studies before they threw you out as hopeless? You know as well as I do. Yes, but do you know enough? Did they drive enough into your head so that you can guess what any competent doctor would be able to tell you about such a wound? And the pie lady asks, what wound? Also, by the way, after his father has called George over, George sits, putting his shorter father in the position of authority. Well, it's, um, it's a knock or a blow. His head was battered in. <laughs> Oh, says Pi, that wound. Now, could it be caused by a, a tile falling off the roof or a piece of the coping? Well, Governor, you see, it's, it's like this. Is it possible? No. Why not? Because she hit him several times. Okay, so she hit him several times. Who? Her father sits down on the couch with her to speak with her eye to eye, although she mostly avoids his gaze. Now answer me. You were in the stable. Yes. One moment, though. Who knew that you were in love with this wretched schoolmaster? No one. I never said a word about it. Don't worry. The whole darn village knows. They've been sniggering about it in the plow for three years past. So it sounds like she did in this wretched schoolmaster. And we're about to get the whole story. Except that we have nearly our entire cast sitting around together. So let's look at our four actors who are here right now. Cedric Hardwick, who plays Mr. Princey, was born in Lye, England. As a young man, he attended the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. This after, according to Wikipedia, he failed the necessary examinations to become a doctor. And he made his stage debut in 1912. However, World War I intervened, and he spent seven years as an officer in the Judge Advocates branch of the British Army in France. 
In fact, he was one of the last members of the British Expeditionary Force to leave, and he was a captain at that time. Returning to the British stage after World War I, he appeared in a number of George Bernard Shaw plays, including The Apple Cart, Heartbreak House, and Back to Methuselah. And it was because of his association with Shaw that he ended up earning his knighthood at the age of 41. He was the youngest actor to earn a knighthood until Laurence Olivier broke his record 13 years later by earning his knighthood at the age of 40. In fact, Cedric credited George Bernard Shaw as being a major force in making the actor an acceptable member of society. He said he fought as nobody else did for recognition of the actor as an intelligent member of the community. This didn't help him, though, when the hard of hearing King George V, after being prompted in knighting him, said, rise, Sir Cedric Pickwick. Cedric and Shaw remained good friends, and he continued to work in Shavian Theater, appearing on Broadway in Candida, Don Juan in Hell, and as Caesar in Caesar and Cleopatra. He also directed Gertrude Lawrence in Pygmalion in 1946, though he really wanted to stick with acting. He said, I'm the only actor I know who never wanted to do anything else. There's a wonderful anecdote that I've seen all over the place, but the telling of it that I like best is from Norman Lloyd, as quoted in The Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion. Norman said, Cedric Hardwick knew Bernard Shaw, who I think wrote the play The Apple Cart for him. Cedric was talking to Bernard Shaw one day, and Shaw said to him suddenly, you know, you're my fourth favorite actor in the world. And Hardwick said, thank you very much, sir. May I ask who the first three are? And Shaw said, the three Marx brothers. In the 1930s and most of the 40s, Cedric moved back and forth between England and Broadway and Hollywood. And during that time, in 1945, he played Sherlock Holmes in a BBC radio dramatization of The Speckled Band, which I mention only because his son Edward, who was also an actor, is best known for playing Dr. Watson in much of the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes series. In 1948, he joined the Old Vic Company, but according to Wikipedia, it was about this time that he confessed to a friend that he was finding the competition in London too hot for him, and he moved permanently to the United States. Among his films are Stanley and Livingston. He played Livingston to Spencer Tracy's Stanley. King Solomon's Mines, playing Alan Quartermain. Wilson, playing Henry Cabot Lodge. The Life and Adventures of Nicholas Nickleby, playing Ralph Nickleby. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, playing King Arthur. Helen of Troy, playing Priam. And The Ten Commandments, playing the old pharaoh, Seti. There is the obelisk of your jubilee, Baka. Put a thousand slaves to removing the sand until the stone settles to its base. Pharaoh is pleased? The obelisk? Yes. But not with certain accusations made against you. By whom? You raided the temple granaries? Yes. You gave the grain to the slaves? Yes. Gave them one day and seven to rest. Yes. Did you do all this to gain their favor? A city is built of brick, Pharaoh. The strong make many, the starving make few. The dead make none. 
So much for accusations. Now judge the results. But there's another type of movie that Cedric Hardrick appeared in fairly often. This is from classic underscore monsters.com. His first foray into the world of horror came in 1933 with his performance in The Ghoul, opposite Boris Karloff and Ernest Thesiger. His career became more tightly bound up with the world of horror movies, with his appearance alongside Charles Lawton as Frollo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Shortly afterwards, he starred in The Invisible Man Returns with Vincent Price. Helen, I want you to trust me. Without our help, he hasn't a chance. The police are sure to find him. We'll get him to the continent or to America. You must tell me where he is for his sake. All right, Richard. I'll start from the beginning. I'll start from the beginning, if you don't mind, Helen. Jeffrey! Yes, Richard, I've come for a little chat. Jeffrey, where are you? You're amongst friends. There's no danger. Friends like you are a great comfort. Where are you, Jeffrey? Show yourself. I'd have a little difficulty doing that just now. Where are you hiding? Perhaps that will show you where your friend is hiding. Sit down. Roles in the likes of The Ghost of Frankenstein, Invisible Agent, and as the narrator in Albert Lewin's eerie The Picture of Dorian Gray, placed Cedric Hardwick firmly on the roster of horror movie staples. He also did some science fiction, in William Cameron Menzies' Things to Come. I rebel against this progress. What has this progress, this world civilization done to us? Machines and marvels. They've built these great cities of theirs, yes. They've prolonged life, yes. They've conquered nature, they say, and made a great white world. Is it any jollier than the world used to be in the good old days, when life was short and hot and merry and the devil took the hindmost? All the same, what can we do about it? Rebel. Rebel now, now, now is the time. Why now in particular? Why, because of this space gun business. Because of this project to shoot human beings at the stars. People don't like it, shooting humans away into hard, frozen darkness. They're murmuring. They've murmured before and nothing came of it. Because they had no leader. But now, suppose someone cried, HALT! and in George Powell's War of the Worlds doing the commentary, both films based on works by H.G. Wells. Things to Come, by the way, takes place in the year 2036, and I don't think it's likely that in 14 years we're gonna have the city depicted in that film. He can also be seen in television science fiction, the Outer Limits episode, The Forms of Things Unknown, and the Twilight Zone episode, Uncle Simon, alongside Constance Ford, whom we just saw two episodes ago in The Creeper. Well, my wilting blossom, what's on your mind? Your hot chocolate is ready. You told me you were going to take a nap. Sometime try extending yourself, Uncle, just sufficiently to let me know where you are on occasion. Well, now, Barbara, my love, I think I can narrow that down for you. If I'm not upstairs in my bedroom or in the study, then I'm downstairs in my laboratory. In any case, wherever I am, you can bring the hot chocolate. And if I'm not, it means I've dropped it en route. 
and you can bring me a bottle of formaldehyde and a rose. Sadly, at the time of this Twilight Zone episode, Cedric Hardwick did not have all that much longer to live. He was a lifetime heavy smoker, and he suffered from emphysema and COPD. But before we get to his end, let's look at a few more aspects of his career. First of all, he was in two episodes of Suspense on TV, Death in the Passing and The Interruption. Then he has two slight connections to Hitchcock. He was the one who initiated plans for a movie using a number of British writers, directors, and actors, as Wikipedia puts it, intended to honor their homeland spirit and to benefit war relief charities in the 1940s, the film that became Forever in a Day. Cedric directed and acted in that film, and it is believed that Hitchcock was going to be a director in that film until the filming of Suspicion ran overtime. Cedric is also in the 1944 film of The Lodger, but then he has two direct connections with Alfred Hitchcock, appearing in both Suspicion as General McLaidlaw, Joan Fontaine's character's father. I went for a walk. Thank you, Britton. With a man. A man? Yes, his name's John Aysgarth. John Aysgarth? Is that Tom Aysgarth's boy? Well, how'd you meet him? It's a pity he's turned out so wild. Rough luck on Tom. What's this, horseradish? And the horseradish was in season now. It's not of a bottle, is it? Of course not, dear. Oh, that's real, so I can tell the difference at once. I can't stand things out of bottles. Never taste the same. Never, dear. Why, you Why wild? did you say that John Garth was wild, Father? Well, he was turned out of some club of cheating at cards, wasn't he? I don't know. I didn't ask him. Or ought to have been. Something unpleasant, anyway. What's he doing down here? Staying at Penn's Hayes. I shouldn't have thought that Lord Ridlam would have had him there if he'd been turned out of a club for cheating. Well, perhaps he wasn't a card. Maybe in a woman. He was correspondent or something, I believe. Or ought to have been correspondent. Good heavens, you can't expect me to remember every detail about everybody, can you? Well, anyway, I'm going to see him again. He's calling for me this afternoon at three. And Rope, as Mr. Kentley, the father of the murder victim, who nobody knows yet is a murder victim. Henry. Alice hasn't had a word from David. She's frantic. I better talk to her. She hung up. She began to cry so badly. Oh, Henry, I'm worried. What did she say? She's been calling every place he might be, not once, but several times. And now, Henry, she thinks he may have had an accident. She wants you to call the police. The police? Oh, no, Anita, I, I don't think that's necessary. David's no longer a child. I'm quite sure he's all right. I... Randall, I think I'd better go home. My wife needs me. This isn't like David. He... Of course, I understand. May I go with you, Mr. Kentley? Thank you, Janet. Now, his New York Times obituary said that although he made a considerable amount of money during his career, he was not well off financially in his later years. One friend said that Sir Cedric liked to spend money as fast as he earned it, and being flat broke did not really disturb him. An associate said that Sir Cedric did not let financial problems make him unhappy. He would smile and shrug his shoulders because it was a regular part of his life and his friends understood. But unfortunately, according to IMDb, when he died, his money was so eaten up by hospital expenses that there was no money left to pay for a funeral. Several actors' funds, in honor of his long-distinguished career, donated the money. 
Sir Cedric Hardwick died in 1964 at the age of 71. This is his first of two Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearances. His next and last is A Man Greatly Beloved, episode 33 of season two. And I'd like to read one more quote of his, this one courtesy of IMDb. I believe that God felt sorry for actors, so he created Hollywood to give them a place in the sun and a swimming pool. The price they had to pay was to surrender their talent. Tita Purdom, who plays Millicent, is a little harder to pin down, partly because she only has eight credits listed in IMDb, and partly because her name wasn't Tita Purdom when she began as a ballet dancer. It was Anita Phillips. Tita is apparently a diminutive of Anita, and Purdom comes from her marriage to actor Edmund Purdom. Prior to that, she was at the Sadler Wells School of Ballet, where she was known for work in Sadler Wells operas. She danced on the London stage in 1950 and was in the 1950 BBC production of the ballet Cinderella. She married Edmund Purdom in 1951, and the marriage lasted four years. The couple had two children, and there is a photo of her and her two kids at outlet.historicimages.com with the description, Actress Tita Purdom, divorced wife of British actor Edmund Purdom, counts money lent to her by an undefined friend to forestall her eviction. And that photo is dated February 19, 1957. Further, pulpinternational.com has a feature on the January 1958 issue of Confidential, one of the scandal sheets of the time. Now, who knows if it's true or not, but that issue had an article called What Edmund Purdom Didn't Tell. Here's the part that is reproduced on the website. Even a first-day visitor from Mars would have been able to single out Hollywood's top nominee for number one heel of 1955 when handsome British actor Edmund Purdom walked into a Los Angeles court last January and instituted proceedings for a divorce from his dancer wife, Tita. The rotter, as they say in Old London, was Eddie himself. Hollywood sizzled with lurid details of how he dumped his patient loyal bride of four years and their two daughters to stage a blistering undercover amour with sultry Linda Christian, which had put her marriage to Thai power on the rocks as well. Over the cocktail glasses at Ciro's and the dinner tables at Macambo, finding someone with a good word for Purdom was tougher than locating a mourner for Joe Stalin. Tita played it for all it was worth. When we had nothing, she wailed, we clung together like babes in the woods. But now that he's successful in being chased by a glamour girl, he can't stand me in the same room. While Purdom maintained a tight-lipped silence and took the scorn and sneers of Hollywood, New York, and London on the chin, Tita granted interview after interview playing for sympathy. His side of the story just never saw daylight until now. That, unfortunately, is all that's on this website. But we do have the subheading that says, Tita Purdom and her check-bouncing boyfriend had a merry time. She was on the town, he was on the bottle, the baby was on tomato sauce, and the joke was on Edmund. He was footing the bills. And there's also a photo of a distressed-looking Tita that says, Caught! Actual photo of Tita Purdom when hubby Edmund caught her with Jack Iverson in a surprise raid. And there's a photo of Jack Iverson, who has one credit in IMDb, 
as American soldier in 1955's Conquest of Space. The caption reads, Czech bouncer Jack Iverson not only checked in with Tita Purdom, but moved his grandma in too. Now this is all very tawdry and tantalizing, but who knows how much of it is true, and I don't have any more information than that. So let's move back to happier times. There is a photo on GettyImages.com labeled Edmund Purdom and Tita Phillips that says British actor Edmund Purdom marries ballet dancer Anita Phillips, a.k.a. Tita Phillips, at Brompton Oratory in London, 5th January, 1951. They met whilst appearing in the Golden City, and they do very definitely look very happy together. I can't find much on Tita after her marriage, other than that sad photo of her counting money that will prevent her from being evicted. But her IMDb credits go up to 1959. And there is this line from John Francachina's Hermes Pan, The Man Who Danced with Fred Astaire biography, in which he says, after the new year, Hermes staged a nightclub act for Tita Purdom, the recently divorced wife of the actor who played Prince Karl Franz in The Student Prince. In his syndicated column of April 12, 1956, Jim Mahoney reported that the act was scheduled to open at Johnny Walsh's Supper Club before leaving for a six-week tour of Europe, playing clubs in London, Paris, Berlin, and Rome. And in my search for her, I have discovered that there was a ballerina named Anita Phillips who performed into the 1970s. Is this Tita? Did she go back to ballet? I can't tell you for sure. I also can't tell you her dates. I know that Edmund Purdom was born in 1924 and died in 2009, but I can't tell you anything about Tita. What I do know is that two of her credits were with the Alfred Hitchcock-produced television series Suspicion, appearing in Lord Arthur Seville's Crime and a larger role in Fraction of a Second with Betty Davis. Pretty little girl. Oh, she's very shy. She usually doesn't take to strangers. Well, I was once very shy myself. I understand. We were just talking about my little girl, Susan Ellis, from Miss Slater's school. Oh, I see now. That guy at the police station got it all wrong. You see, my name was Susan Ellis before I got married, and I used to go to a Miss Slater school when I was, ooh, real little. That's where the mistake came in. What a remarkable coincidence. My name is Ellis, and my little girl from Miss Slater's school is named Susan. My butcher's name is Ellis. It's a common enough name. You know Slaty? Slaty? Miss Slater who ran the school. Oh, yes, I know her very well. Oh, I like her. She did her best for me kept me a lot, holidays and all. That was after my mother was killed in a street accident. Oh, how good of her. How dreadful for you. Oh, I don't remember much about it. But I do remember my mother was a very kind person and very sweet and so very pretty. You know what? You remind me of her very much. Thank you. It's time to go now, Mrs. Ellis. Tita Purdom is in one more episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Miss Bracegirdle Does Her Duty, episode 18 of season three.
Catherine Gibney plays Mrs. Princey. She was born in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, and IMDb says that she's best known for her role as Mrs. Rhinelander in the 1949 film My Friend Irma. They also say that she was often seen as snooty society matrons. Catherine mostly performed in theater, although she does have 65 credits on IMDb. She was on Broadway from 1927 to 1946. A 1928 article in the Baltimore Evening Sun entitled Acting Not Soft Life Avers This Thespian says Catherine Gibney declares she hasn't had a vacation in six years. A hard-working actress who has had but one vacation in six years came to town this week with the hope of pursuing her arduous labors in Baltimore during the summer, only to return to Broadway in the fall as a member of a New York cast. The young woman is Miss Catherine Gibney, a member of the S.E. Cochran Repertory Company, which arrived in Ford's Theater on Monday. Yes, smiled Miss Gibney, an attractive brunette. Everybody thinks acting is a soft life, punctuated by frequent vacations. But it isn't so, and I am so terribly extravagant, or else the cost of living is so very, very high, that I haven't been able to afford a vacation for six years. At that time, I went to Europe, forgot all about the theater, played around until I had spent all my money, and then came back home to work. I guess the best way to describe stage folk is to say that they just play in order to play. I do hope to stay in your city all summer, the actress continued. I have procured the cutest little room right in the shadow of Washington Monument. And as soon as I locate a few good bathing beaches in the vicinity of the city, a golf course or two, and maybe even an airplane landing field where one can take an occasional spin, I'll be all set. More because it would be a violation of an actress's code of ethics than for any other reason, Miss Gibney declines to divulge her age. She was 31 years old at the time of this article. Suffice it to reveal, says she, that she was born in Wisconsin and stepped right onto the stage after graduating from high school. There is a very short article in the Los Angeles Evening Post record of 1930, headlined, Catherine Givney Can't Get Away. Catherine Givney, who plays the role of one of the ex-burlesque queens in Howard Warren Comstock's farce comedy, Stepping Sisters, opening Christmas Day at the Hollywood Playhouse, came to Hollywood two years ago to remain for six weeks only, but she never returned. One engagement followed another and kept her so occupied that she has been unable to return to the eastern metropolis even for a short visit. And sadly, there's a small article in the Los Angeles Times of 1978 entitled Services for Actress Catherine Givney Set, which does tell us that she appeared on Broadway with such performers as George M. Cohan, Otis Skinner, Billy Burke, and Ina Clare. Now, along with my friend Irma, Catherine appeared in A Place in the Sun, Three Coins in the Fountain. I can't understand why she said she was going home to get married. Do you know if she's seen a doctor? Such a thing would never occur to me. She seems like such a nice girl. Nice girls are human, my dear. Three episodes of Perry Mason, That Touch of Mink, Guys and Dolls, General Cartwright, what a pleasant surprise. Sarah? I didn't even know you were in town. A flying visit. Flew in from Boston early this morning. Important luncheon meeting. While waiting, thought I'd check a few of our outposts informally. I must say, Sarah, I was surprised to find the mission unattended in a neighborhood as unsavory as this. Why should you be surprised, General? You've seen our records. We don't seem to get anyone in here even to rob the place. Yes. 
Well, now that you've brought it up, I must confess I have come for a purpose. An unhappy one, I'm afraid. Well, I know it doesn't look as if we're accomplishing anything, but in time, I time, know that I'm somehow... is what we can no longer afford. My good friends, after careful deliberation, National Headquarters has decided to close this branch of the mission. Close the mission? No, General, please. Even if I haven't made a success of it, there must be someone who will. Sarah Brown, if you can't attract sinners, nobody can. There are so many calls on us, my dear. So many other places where our work is needed. How do you do? I don't believe we've met. Brother... Brother Sky Masterson, former sinner. Four episodes of My Three Sons as Grandma Collins, the FBI, the Virginian, 77 Sunset Strip, Hawaiian Eye, and her final role on Owen Marshall, Counselor at Law. She has a couple of slight connections to Alfred Hitchcock. She's in Once You Kiss a Stranger, the 1969 remake of Strangers on a Train. And she's in the Suspicion episode, Way Up to Heaven. Any sign of life in there yet? No, there won't be for a while yet. How is she? Well, she's all right so far. The poor thing. I hope somebody shoots him if she doesn't make it this time. This is her first of two Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes. Her next and last is Servant Problem, episode 34 of season six. And Catherine Gibney died in 1978 at the age of 81. Jerry Barclay plays George, later billing himself as Jared Barclay. Jerry was born in Seattle and he has over 50 credits on IMDb. One of his earliest is as a junkie in the film, The Man with the Golden Arm. He's also in Bop Girl Goes Calypso, War of the Satellites, and the Bonanza episode, The Last Haircut. Better get out of that chair, mister. No sense getting killed over a little thing like a haircut. Duke here is uh, touchy about the way he looks. He was also in the Broadway production of the Peter Weiss play, popularly known as Marat Saad that is actually entitled The Persecution and Assassination of Jean-Paul Marat, as performed by the inmates of the Asylum of Cherendon under the direction of the Marquis de Sade. Now, Jerry also worked as an acting coach, and starting in 1993, he began working as a travel photojournalist. But much of his work and many of his credits on IMDb are for voice work in such cartoons as Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo, Quickie Quala Show, Trollkins, Richie Rich, Challenge of the Gobots, Foofer, The Smurfs, and The Transformers. No, I must stand by what I believe in, but we're helping these people in their fight. My one wish is to never fight again. This is his first of three appearances on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next is I Killed the Count, Part One episode 25 of season two. And Jerry Barclay is, at the time of this recording, 91 years old. So that's our family. Now, what were the exact circumstances of just what Millicent did? Now, once more, you were in the old stable. You were putting the croquet set back in the box. 
Yes. You heard someone crossing the yard. Yes. It was Withers. You called to him. Yes. Loudly. Did you call loudly? Could anyone have heard I didn't you? exactly call him, Father. What did you do exactly? Well, I... No. He saw me as I came to the door, and he just waved and came over. How can I get out of you whether anyone was about? Could he have been seen? No, because anyone could see that it was just about to rain. I suppose everybody was inside. Just then it began to pour. And he came running to the stable door. And you both stayed in the stables? It was raining hard. What did he say? He said... Hello, Minnie. And to excuse him for coming in by the back way. But he'd set out to walk over Bass Hill. Hunting butterflies. And he thought he would get in from the rain. If I didn't mind. Go on. He said, passing the park, it's in the house. And thought of me. Because he had something special to tell me. <gasps> Millicent, don't cry. He said he'd been definitely up at the post of Science Master at St. Jones's. And now he could marry. And I thought he meant me. Don't tell me what you thought. Exactly what he said. No more. He said, oh, oh dear. <laughs> Don't cry. It's a luxury you cannot afford. Now answer me. He said it wasn't me. It's... Ella Brannan Davis, and he was sorry and all that. And then he went to go. And then? I couldn't stand it. He turned round and I had the croquet mallet in my hand and I... Oh, oh dear. <laughs> Did you scream or cry? I mean, when you hit him. I just threw it down. Did he? No, I just threw it down. I came into the house. That's all. I wish I was dead. Yes, unfortunately, that wouldn't help matters now. The soundtrack for this scene, and for much of the episode, is the sound of the rain. Unfortunately, it isn't the only soundtrack for the entire episode. And when we get two shots of Millicent and her father, we can see the bay window behind and the rain falling on it. But much of the scene focuses in on close-ups back and forth between the two of them. It's very intimate. And in those close-ups, we can see things like the thickness of Mr. Princey's glasses. In the episode of Hitch 20 that focuses on this episode, John P. Hess of FilmmakerIQ.com has this to say. Mr. Princey, the father, 
is dressed in dark colors. He's got a dark suit on. That's because he's different than everyone else. Everyone else in this, in this play are simpletons. Everyone, he is a deeper thinker. He's a calculating person. And that even exemplifies itself in his glasses. Notice those glasses, those big, thick lenses that seem to distort his eyes. It's like a visual metaphor of an intellectual who is so far removed from morality that he can concoct this amazing scheme. And in our close-ups of Millicent, she seems to be looking right at us as she tells her story, prompting the narrator of Hitch 20 to say, And to top it all off, Millie looks into the camera and starts talking to us. Now we're in on the secret, and that puts us at risk as well. When Millicent comes to the end of her story, finishing with, I wish I was dead, she wilts and slowly lowers herself until she puts her head in her mother's lap. The camera follows her down all the way. We're close enough to her now that we can see the print on the sofa, and there are people riding horses on it, a perfectly appropriate print for a family where somebody has murdered a man in the stables. Mrs. Princey's lap becomes just a prop, a pillow for Millicent to lie on. Mr. Princey is viewing Millicent almost as an object. He doesn't really care for her well-being. If she was dead, it wouldn't help the family now. Darren at themovieblog.com quotes Mr. Princey from right before the clip that I played when he says, our family has held a position of respect in this community for generations. I do not intend to have that position destroyed by the stupidity of one foolish female. And Darren says, don't you just hate it when the kids ruin your family's prestigious reputation? But that's exactly it. It's the family's position of respect in the community that matters. It's not the family itself. The victim, of course, matters even less. Mr. Princey says, matter-of-factly, it was Withers. But the murder is already done. We don't see it. We barely see Withers later on. As the Hitch 20 narrator says, By setting up this array of personalities, none of which seem to care about the victim in this story, we're glued to the screen, almost in disbelief. Or as Thomas M. Lech says in his essay, The Outer Circle, Hitchcock on Television, featured in the Alfred Hitchcock Centenary Essays book, the victims are never seen, or seen too briefly to generate any sympathy, and the emphasis falls on the problems their murders create for the murderers. The camera backs up to show us all four of the family members again, this time from the point of view of the front door, behind George. No one is looking our way, until... It could have been attacked in the woods. We must consider every detail. A schoolmaster with his head battered in. Don't, Father. A schoolmaster with his head battered in is found in the woods. <laughs> now, who'd want to kill Withers? <laughs> who'd kill Withers? <laughs> I would with pleasure. The camera turns around and we see the front door from the family's point of view, more or less. And the surprise visitor is Captain Smollett, played by John Williams, who has walked in unannounced, much to his later regret. Any attempt to smooth this over as a joke is immediately jettisoned by Millicent blurting out, He had you, Father, he had you. That sort of urgency clearly revealing that this is more than just a joke. 
In Hitch 20, William C. Martell, author of Hitchcock, Experiments in Terror, says... There's suspense built around the daughter, who's a complete loose cannon. She could say the wrong thing in front of this guy, and they could be in big trouble. And Parker Mott from TheFinalTake.com says this, also on Hitch 20. The daughter, who to me represents sort of like the id, in the sense that she is totally... She can't control her emotions. She has no filter. She's hysterical. She is almost animal in the way her, her body movements are very kind of rigid and her hair is kind of frizzled. And she seems like she just is in absolute disarray. Tita Purdom does do a great job as Millicent. The way she slouches as she strides, the way she wolfs down sandwiches. It gives a physical sense to her priorities, such as later when we find out She's more concerned about missing her tea than she really is about killing Withers. But Captain Smollett is oblivious to all this. He's the jovial sort of simple type, and he reveals that why he jokingly said he would gladly kill Withers is because he was practically engaged, he thought, to the woman that Withers is now, he thinks, going to marry. Yeah. Uh, it would be justifiable homicide, I should say. Have you heard about Ella Brangman Davis? Oh, I shall be laughed at. Why? Why should you be laughed at? Uh, had a shot in that direction myself. She half said yes, too. <laughs> Didn't you hear? She's been telling people that we were practically engaged. And now it'll look as if I got turned down for a knobby-kneed clown with a butterfly net. <laughs> yes. Yes. I can quite see that that would make you feel rather bitter. Oh, well, fortune of war, you know. So Smollett, too, is aware of his position in the community. But whereas Princey can let things stand, Smollett declares it fortunes of war, which, by the way, is in every version of this story, that line. Of course, Smollett's stain on his reputation is not anywhere near the stain of a murder. There's an odd little sequence of stage business in that scene. Princey offers Smollett a cigarette, which he turns down. Princey pulls one out himself, along with a lighter. But his lighter doesn't work, and he soon puts it and the cigarette away. Now, why is that there? It could be that it's stage business to allow Princey to sort of sift through his thoughts. By the time all of that stage business is done, he has a slight smile on his face. He's thought of something. And with that, he tells his wife and Millicent to get a drink for Captain Smollett, and he asks George to come along with him. They have some business elsewhere. And they walk to the stables, but not out in the rain. They have a hallway that leads from the house directly there. So while the women keep Smollett busy, we cut to the stables, which look like a garage. Princey is standing there, Withers' body lying right next to him, the croquet mallet next to him. But Princey doesn't even look at them. It's like they're not even there. And the whole thing is very bloodless. There's no blood around on the floor. There's no blood that we can see on the mallet. There's no indentation, no sign of being hit over the head several times on Withers' head. Princey doesn't turn until George enters carrying a long rifle, which Princey tells him to put behind the door. Only then does he look down at the murder victim. Now we, we better get this out of sight in case anybody comes in. Put it in there. Get this out of sight. Put it in there. 
Withers' body has ceased to be a person. It's just a thing to be carted around. And so as George drags Withers' body around a corner, we unfortunately get our first piece of actual music, and it's stock music we have heard before. And this music seems to be telling us not to take all this too seriously, that this is actually a comedy, even though we're seeing some pretty serious things happening on screen. There's a nice shot of the head and shoulders of Withers disappearing around the corner as George is tugging him away. Even while Princey picks up the mallet, wipes the fingerprints off the handle, and then goes over to a grate in the floor, he lifts it up and inspects it until he sees a rat running across the floor. Hitchcock even gives us a shot of that rat running across the floor, which is completely unnecessary because the only purpose the rat serves is to give Princey the idea that that's why they're out in the stable. And he could have gotten that idea without actually seeing a rat. But I think to some extent it's a distraction, a MacGuffin, if you will. Because once we see that rat, there's a part of us that assumes that rat is going to become important later on, and it never does. Yes, that's it. We came to shoot a rat. What are we doing, Governor? I'm saving the family name. Now, so far, you've done as you've been told. Please continue to do so. Well, I, I think that's everything. We have broken away for commercial, and when we come back, we're back in the house. Mrs. Princey and Smollett are sitting in chairs. Millicent hovers above, very agitated. If there was any point where Smollett could get away from all this, it's now. But he doesn't. He's too polite to just up and leave, and he actually turns down a second drink. But Millicent makes it for him anyway, and once it's in front of him, he drinks it. Another drink, Captain Smollett. Uh, no, thank you. I Are think you I... sure you wouldn't like another? You always have two. Millicent, what do you want? One or not? Now, Millie, she's overwrought, Captain Smollett. Yes, of course. I really think I'd better be... Oh, excuse me, my dear. Smollett, would you care to see something rather interesting? Why, yes, to be sure. Good, come along then. Oh, uh, uh, thank you very much, Millicent. Well, there's no hurry. Finish your drink. It's all right. I'll finish it later. No. It's a nice little bit of comic business that John Williams pulls off perfectly. When he says, I'll finish it later, he looks down at the glass. He's already finished it. The three men exit through the door. There's a quick cut to the three men entering the door at the stables. It's a nice effect. Princey enters first, and he goes behind that door and grabs that rifle, so that by the time George, who comes in third, closes the door, Princey is pointing the gun at Smollett. Smollett looks down at it lackadaisically. It's the last thing he expects. We get a nice three shot of Princey and Smollett facing each other with George looking on in between. And then it switches to a series of close-ups between Princey and Smollett as they have a very polite talk about Smollett being a problem. It's a battle very quietly waged with a gun in between. 
Well, George and I came out here to shoot a rap that frightened Millicent earlier this afternoon. Of course, you may be shot by accident if you don't listen very carefully. I mean that. <laughs> What's the matter with you, Princey? A very tragic thing occurred today. It'll be even more tragic if things can't be smoothed over. Huh? You heard me say, who'd kill Withers? You also heard Millicent make a comment, an unguarded comment. Well, what of it? Very little. Unless you happen to hear that Withers made a very violent end earlier this afternoon. And that, my dear Smollett, is exactly what you're going to hear. What? You... you've killed him? Millicent. Good heavens. Precisely. You would have remembered and guessed. Well, maybe. Yes, I, I suppose I would. And so, my dear Smollett, you become somewhat of a problem. Why did she kill him? Oh, it's one of those disgusting things, rather pitiable as a matter of fact. She deluded herself into thinking that he was in love with her. Oh, of course. And then he told her about the Brangwyn Davis girl. I see. Now, I have no wish that she should be proved insane or a murderess. I could hardly live here after that, could I? <laughs> no, I suppose not. So again, it's not a matter of whether Millicent is insane, which she might well be, or a murderess, which she certainly is, but whether the family, or Princey in particular, could continue living there after that was found out. Smollett, who understands the whole aspect of gentility, realizes that Princey is quite right. He wouldn't be able to live there after that. On the other hand, you know about it. Ah, I see. You're wondering if I can keep my mouth shut. But, but I, I, I promise. I'm wondering if I could believe you. No, but I mean, if I promised. If things went smoothly, yes. But if there were any sort of suspicion, any questioning, you would be afraid of becoming an accessory. Oh, I don't know. I do. What are we going to do about it, Smollett? I, I can't think of anything else. You, you'd never be such a fool as to do me in. I mean, you, you can't get rid of two corpses. I regard it as a better risk than the other. Could be an accident. Or you and Withers might both disappear. What are possibilities in that? Now, look here, you can't. As a matter of fact, there is a way out. You suggested yourself. Oh, did I? Well, what, what was it? You said that you'd kill Withers. You had a motive. <laughs> I was joking. You're always joking. People think there's something behind it. Now, look here, Smollett. I can't trust you. Therefore, you must trust me. Go on. There's a sewer there. We're going to put Withers' body into it. Now, remember, no outsider knows that he came here this afternoon. Nobody will ever dream of looking there for it unless you tell them. But you're going to give me evidence that you murdered Withers. What? Why should I? So that I may be dead sure that you'll never open your lips on the matter. If you don't, I shall shoot you now, this next minute. Now, you can choose between living or dying. What evidence? George, hit him hard in the face. And with that, the series of alternating close-ups ends. And we get a two-shot of Smollett and George. George looks as surprised as Smollett at his father's command. But he does as he's told. He grabs Smollett by the jacket and hits him, which pushes him up against the door. 
Princey orders him to do it again with the additional suggestion of... Don't bruise your knuckles. George does hit him again, which angers Smollett enough that he pushes back against George, only to walk into a three-shot again with Princey leveling the rifle at his chest. There's still an aspect of politeness to all this, but now the emotions have gotten quite real, and Princey proceeds with his plan. George, pick up that crooked man. Use your handkerchief. Now grasp the handle firmly, Smollett. I'll shoot you if you don't. Blast you. Things have gotten raw enough so that Smollett actually says, blast you, but nothing more serious than that. But here's the thing about that mallet, which, by the way, looks quite large to me compared to the croquet mallets I played with as a kid. It looks almost like the mallet that Harley Quinn carries around in the Birds of Prey movie. Well, not that big, but you get the idea. In any event, Princey has Smollett grasp the mallet just once, and he lets go again. So his fingerprints are on there just in one position. They're not smudged. They're not spread around on the handle. Would that be possible to have one firm spot and hit somebody more than once on the head with that mallet? Also, Princey has gone out of his way to make sure that all the other fingerprints are removed from the mallet. But shouldn't there be other fingerprints on that mallet? Doesn't the family play croquet with that mallet? So to me, this aspect of the plan just doesn't work. And it's not the only thing. Now, George, pull two hairs out of his head. Now attach them firmly around the buttons on Wither's coat sleeve. George does as he's told, and he leaves the shot, leaving us with the two men as Princey orders Smollett over to the sewer grate. They switch positions, Smollett now on the left, and the camera follows them over to the grate and then moves in closer towards the grate as Smollett lifts it off. Now Wither's body is in there. Get hold of it by the boots, drag it through and dump it in the sewer. I shan't touch him. Stand back, George. And unfortunately, that stock music returns. Now, now wait, wait a minute. Smollett bends down to grab Withers by the boots, and the camera moves down a little bit with him, so that as the body is dragged to the grating, we don't really see Smollett, we just see Withers. It's the only time we see his face, and he looks rather peaceful. His head doesn't look bashed in. Oh, no, I... There's no blood trail from his head along the floor. In our polite society, he's a very polite corpse. Of course, we don't have time to give him a real close look because he's soon dropped down into that sewer. There are a few cutaways to Smollett, to Princey and George, but for the most part, that camera stays on that hole leading to the sewer as Withers' body is put in and as Smollett puts the grate back on. It's rather a creepy moment, undermined by that silly stock music. Princey assures Smollett that he's perfectly safe because no one knew that Withers was there and they'll never find his body. The scene switches back to the house. Mrs. Princey and Millicent are back on the couch. Millicent still acting strange, with her face buried up to her eyes, 
Inside her sweater, the maid Jane is there. Shall I call Mr. Prince, ma'am? Oh, no, no. That is, uh, he'll be here in a moment, Jane. Don't, don't. And that brings us to our last actor. Irene Lang plays Jane, and she only has four credits on IMDb. Girl in the Hey Genie episode, Genie Gets Homesick, an English Red Cross worker in Gabby, this episode, and Catherine Croft in the episode The Deadly Idol of the Jungle Jim TV series, starring Johnny Weissmuller. More to the regulation, you know. Failure to comply with this regulation without good cause may result in the guide losing his license. You can still count me out. Jungle Jim, wait a minute. Please, Catherine, keep out of this. But don't you see, Neil? He's only refusing to guide us because of the danger to me. I'll look after you. I know you can, dear, but I'd be much more comfortable if I stayed here at the camp. That is, if I may stay here. Sure, Mrs. Croft. Skipper and Kasim will take good care of you. Then it's settled. If you don't mind, Neil, I would prefer it this way. Well, as you wish, my dear. Now, how soon can we start? As soon as I get some clothes on. Wait, Jungle Jim had no clothes on? Unfortunately, I can't find anything else about Irene Lang, except that she died in 1994 at the age of 71. While Jane is serving the tea, the three men enter from behind the couch so that we get all six characters in the shot. They pretend that this is the first time they have seen Smollett, and this, of course, is for Jane's benefit. Well, look, my dear, we went to the stable to shoot a rat and found Captain Smollett. Oh, I don't be offended, old fellow. Oh, do sit down, all of you, and have your tea. Millicent, come closer to me so that George can sit. Captain Smollett, do sit down. You've bruised your lip. You... Oh! I, I just knocked it. Oh, too bad. How did you do it? Would you like me to have Jane bring you something for it? Now, look here. I mean, please don't trouble. It's all right. Oh, very well, Jane. That's all. Jane leaves, so the pretense that they just found Smollett can be dispensed with. But Princey brings up another pretense that Smollett is voluntarily agreeing to keep quiet. Smollett's being very kind, my dear. He knows all about our trouble. We can rely upon him. We have his word. Oh, have you, Captain Smollett? You are good. He'll tell... I know he'll tell Father. Listen, go to your room and stay there. I can't stand the sight of you anymore. But, Father... I haven't had my tea. Well, go without your blasted tea. I think I'll go along now. <clears throat> it's stopped raining. Another slight comic moment, because it clearly has not stopped raining. Smollett just wants out. Now, look here, my dear. There's nothing to worry about. They'll never find anything here. All we have to do from now on is to keep our heads, and our problems are solved. Oh, Captain Smollett, you are a nobleman. A noble man. And I think that may be true, but it doesn't do him any good, British gentility notwithstanding. Note, too, that Mrs. Princey still believes in things like the gentleman's word. She believes that Captain Smollett will keep quiet. Millicent has no such illusions. He'll tell... I know he'll tell Father. Yes, all we have to do is to keep calm, perfectly calm. Just forget the whole thing. 
Why not stay and have another drink, Smollett, won't you? No, thank you. No, I think I'll get along. Oh, well, if you really must. And Smollett leaves, using the Alfred Hitchcock catchphrase, unfortunately, to the tune of that stock music. Good evening. So it seems as if it may be over, except Princey isn't done. Now pay attention, please. I have a word or two to say. He is saying that to the audience as much as he is to his family. And to say he has a word or two to say is putting it mildly. Come and sit down, Millicent. And please sit quietly. And try and control your appetite until I have finished. I do not want to compete for your attention with a sandwich. George moves behind the couch and turns his back to the rest of his family, looking out the window at the rain, so that we once again have very nearly the same tableau that we had at the start of the episode. And now, in case you weren't paying attention, Mr. Princey explains it all for you. Now listen to me. We can't be certain, of course, that our connection with the uh, disappearance of Mr. Withers will never come to the attention of the police. We must be prepared for any such contingency. So, in case we had ever questioned in the matter, this is what has happened. George and I went down to the stables to shoot a rat. It was a nuisance in the rain, but uh, Millicent insisted. You know I'm not afraid of rats. <laughs> well, you are now. I'm not sure why it was a nuisance in the rain, seeing as none of them seemed to go outside. Now, we were surprised to find our friend Captain Smollett waiting in the stables. Now, you'll recall that the first time he was here was before Jane served tea, so she didn't know that he was here at that time. That's right, she didn't see him. Now, Smollett explained that he was in the stables because he ducked in to avoid a particularly heavy shower. So, naturally, we brought him to the house for tea. You understand? Oh, yes, of course, dear. Oh, I know they'll come. I know they will. They'll Listen, find him. If you can't control yourself until I have finished, I shan't allow you to have any more tea. Hearing this, Millicent looks at her father like he's taken her freedom away from her, which once again just points up what a loose cannon she is and how easily this plan could all fall apart. And say, you certainly have taken care of things neatly. That's right, what? Yes, he is thorough, isn't he? He hasn't overlooked a thing. You think so? It's fortunate we don't have to uh, depend upon you for our security, I must say. But I don't see how it could be any neater. Uh, I mean, Smollett will never tell himself, that's certain enough. But even if they do find the, the cadaver is discovered sometime... If it is discovered, you see? Leaving things to chance, pure chance, the same Sloppy approach that you've always had, George. Supposing Smollett were away when it were discovered. Supposing he had skipped the country. Oh. Well, I didn't think he'd do a thing like that. Probably not. Not enough imagination, I dare say. But I don't intend to take a chance on any such thing. That is a careless, slovenly way of doing things with which I have no patience. But dear, what else can you do? Now listen closely and remember. Two minutes into his explanation, and more listening required. 
Just a moment ago, after Captain Smollett left, we went back to the stable to shoot the rat. We noticed that the cover to the sewer was somewhat ajar. And as you, George, lifted it into place, I glanced in and made a ghastly discovery. Okay, so this sewer only drops down, what, like 10 feet? Just how would he see this body to make this ghastly discovery? Now, is that perfectly clear? Yes, but I don't understand. Well, get me the police station about Shilpies quickly. <laughs> Hello, is that the police station? Oh, this is Mr. Princey of Abbott's Loxton. I'm afraid something rather terrible has happened. You send somebody up here at once, please. Well, I... I believe that should cover everything. Saying this, he removes his glasses and cleans them, those same glasses that magnified his eyes and presented him as the wise one of the family. His wise work is done. All that remains is a couple of concluding lines and a flourish of that familiar stock music. I hope you let this be an example to you, my boy. It's a rare problem that won't yield to a little thought and patience. But we must be very careful never to leave any loose ends dangling. You see, that's the thing. Little tea, mother, please. John Collier's short story is much the same, with a couple of minor changes and a couple of larger changes. The story is dialogue heavy, so much of the dialogue is reproduced exactly in the episode. But in the story, Withers is not a schoolmaster, he's a curate. And Millicent says, he said he was so happy he wanted me to share it. He'd heard from the bishop he was to have the vicarage. And it wasn't only that, it meant he could marry. And he began to stutter, and I thought he meant me. So just imagine Millicent as a vicar's wife. Another change is that Millicent does not kill him with a croquet mallet, but with the winning post of the croquet set. In other words, she hits Withers on the head with the stake you would hit with your ball to win the game. But the larger changes are Mr. Princey's obvious revulsion of his family and the lack of an explanation at the end for the call to the police. The story doesn't hide Mr. Princey's revulsion. One paragraph in, Collier writes, this house, ill-kept and unprepossessing, was necessary to Mr. Princey, who detested his wife, his daughter, and his hulking son. His life was to walk through the village, touching his hat, not smiling. His cold pleasure was to recapture snapshot memories of the eminently remote summers of his childhood, coming into the orangery and finding his lost wooden horse, the tunnel in the box hedge, and the little square of light at the end of it. But now all this was threatened. His austere pride of position in the village, his passionate attachment to the house, and all because Millicent, his cloddish daughter Millicent, had done this shocking and incredibly stupid thing. And here is how the story ends. See, my dear, said Mr. Princey to his wife, we went to the stable to shoot a rat and we found Captain Smollett. Don't be offended, my dear fellow. You must have walked up the back drive, said Mrs. Princey. 
Yes, yes, that was it, said Smollett in some confusion. You've cut your lip, said George, handing him a cup of tea. I, I just knocked it. Shall I tell Bridget to bring some iodine, said Mrs. Princey. The maid looked up, waiting. Don't trouble, please, said Smollett. It's nothing. Very well, Bridget, said Mrs. Princey. That's all. Smollett is very kind, said Mr. Princey. He knows all our trouble. We can rely on him. We have his word. Oh, have we, Captain Smollett, cried Mrs. Princey. You are good. Don't worry, old fellow, Mr. Princey said. They'll never find anything. Pretty soon Smollett took his leave. Mrs. Princey pressed his hand very hard. Tears came into her eyes. All three of them watched him go down the drive. Then Mr. Princey spoke very earnestly to his wife for a few minutes, and the two of them went upstairs and spoke still more earnestly to Millicent. Soon after, the rain having ceased, Mr. Princey took a stroll around the stable yard. He came back and went to the telephone. Put me through to Bass Hill Police Station, said he, quickly. Hello, is that the police station? This is Mr. Princey of Abbott's Laxton. I'm afraid something rather terrible has happened up here. Can you send someone at once? So Collier trusts his reader more than Marion Cockrell trusts her television audience. Or perhaps it's just that they needed to film more time in the episode. Whatever the reason, Collier's short, compact story carries much more of a punch. The 1984 Tales of the Unexpected version of the story also trusts its audience to understand what's going on. It features Fritz Weaver as Mr. Princey and Ed Bagley Jr. as George. It's directed by Norman Lloyd, and the only credited writer on it is John Collier, except that John Collier died four years before it aired. Perhaps this is the one-act play version by Collier, mentioned by one of the writers to Jack Seabrook's blog at barebonesez.blogspot.com. It's Americanized, and there's some other changes of detail, including some names. But it's essentially the same story, only this version ends like this. My dear, we have a visitor. I looked into the stables as we passed, and there was Lowry inspecting our stalls. Did you came with a short cup? Yes, hmm. yes, that's it. Rosa, bring another cup for Mr. Lowry. It's... Your hands are shaking, Jack. Is that a cut on your face? What's wrong? Have you had a fall? Yes, I, uh, I, I, I slipped on some wet stones. It's nothing. Well, do you want to go up to the bathroom? I can tell Rosa to get the iodine. No, no, thank you. It's nothing, nothing at all. Very well, Rosa, that's all. Mr. Lowry is very kind. He knows our trouble. We can rely on him. I have his word. Oh? Thank him. Oh, Mr. Lowry, how very kind. How very good you are. How can we ever thank you? It's all right. I I'd like to leave now, if you don't mind. Now, you mustn't worry in the least, Jack. I assure you everything will be all right. There's blood in that stable. I'll clean it up now. Well, I'm sorry you won't stay. I uh, hope you have a good time in the mountains. little visit is all you've seen of Lowry. Do you understand that? Millicent. Let's make her understand that. 
Millicent. Millicent, you're getting a cold. Bad cold. I think you'd be better off in bed for the next few days. Where's my coffee? You're too late, Rose. I'm afraid Mr. Lowry couldn't stay. You know, I've ever seen Lowry behave so strangely. The fall must have shaken him up. When he came out of the stables, he looked absolutely stunned at seeing him. Rosa, these cookies are better than ever. Best yet. Yes, sir. Princey walks out to the stables, making sure that Rosa sees him. And then he quickly returns and goes to the phone. The sheriff's office, please. Who is this, Bob? Uh, Joshua Princey, out at the ranch. Um, Bob, I hope I'm not being an alarmist here, but there's something very peculiar out in my stables. Well. Uh, th there are certain things out there. Blood, I'm sure it's blood and, and other things. I tell you the truth, Bob, I'm terribly worried. Could you could you come over or maybe send one of your deputies? Well, uh, Jack Lowry was here a short while ago. And he seems to be in a terrible state. Oh, excellent. If you come yourself, I, I shall know the matters in the best possible hands. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Now, these aren't the only dramatizations of this story. In fact, the Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode isn't even the first. There were four presentations of it on the radio show Suspense, according to Martin Grahams Jr. in his book, Suspense, 20 Years of Thrills and Chills. Although the 1947 version of the story, starring Boris Karloff, June Havoc, Hans Conried, John McIntyre, and Jeanette Nolan, appears to be lost. So I can't speak for the content of that version, but the others, the June 24, 1942 presentation starring Clarence Derwent, the December 16, 1943 version starring Charles Lawton and Hans Conried, and the March 20, 1948 program, which was paired in an hour-long suspense episode with the story August Heat and starred Dennis Hoey and Hans Conried again. All have the exact same script. So exact, I'm going to do a mashup of the three episodes as I play the conclusion, which is very different from the story, the Hitchcock version, and the tales of the unexpected version. Your number, please. Oh, would you get me the police station, please? Police station? Right away, sir. Police headquarters, Sergeant Yancey speaking. Oh, hello, Sergeant. This is Prince here of Abbott's Road. I, I believe you know me. Oh, indeed I do, Mr. Prince. Sergeant, a horrible thing has just happened. Quite extraordinary. Murder, in fact. Murder? I'm afraid it looks rather bad for, well, for, for a close friend of ours, unfortunately. 
We saw him do it. I, I think you'd better send someone over right away. Well, our man should be there right about now, Mr. Princey. I... I beg your pardon? I say, our man should be there now. Constable Martin has his post right below your house there. Just rang in. Seems Captain Smollett was with him. Uh, Captain Smollett? He reported some rather queer goings on at your place, but I certainly didn't understand it was murder. Just don't touch anything, Mr. Princey. And don't worry. Don't worry at all. No. No, no, no. I, I won't, Sergeant. Thank you. Governor! Governor, where are you? I'm right, There's a man I'm right here. Stop shouting! Oh, we... We have some visitors, Governor. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, I, I can see that. Well, Constable, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mr. Princey. And Smollett, I, I see what a, what a remarkable fellow you are, coming back like this, here to reenact the crime. Only the one against me, Princey. The one against the curate I'll leave to you people. Extraordinary <laughs> sense of humor you have. Uh, Mr. Princey, I just had a look at what's in your well. Not a pretty sight, that. Not pretty at all. Yes, Captain Smollett was thorough, if nothing else. You saw him when he did it, sir, out in the back? Oh, yes, yes, oh, quite. I, we were just returning from a walk, and Smollett had evidently been laying for the curate, hiding out in those bushes by the road, I imagine. Uh, he was never inside this house? Never. Ah, and you say, Captain? I say that while I was inside this house, a guest of the family, I was coerced into dragging the curate's body outside and uh, dumping it in the well. Well, there we are. Well, not entirely, Constable. I'll just uh, remove my raincoat here and uh, demonstrate how damp I got my clothes when I went outside without it. Hmm. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Yes, yes. He undoubtedly removed his coat at some point between here and your post. I might as well tell you that his weapon, a red croaky mallet, is out by the side of this house. I shouldn't be at all surprised that you'd find his fingerprints all over it. All over the end of the mallet, Constable. The end that mashed Withers' head. Uh, not the end I'd have to grasp in order to do the mashing. Governor, That's a decent try, Smollett, but it won't work. There must be other evidence, Constable. You'll undoubtedly find it when you examine the body. Uh, he means the hair under Withers' nails. Well, sir, I happened to notice something when your young George there opened the door for me. If you'll carefully look, I believe you'll find a few of my precious hairs under his nails, too. What are you trying Shut to up, say? George, will you? Oh. Constable, this is a complete waste of time. So far as a violent struggle between Smollett and Withers is concerned, Smollett's face speaks for itself quite eloquently. I... But no more eloquently than your son's knuckles. Huh? As you see, Constable, I... a fresh abrasion. He did that on uh, my teeth. Who? Oh, uh, hmm. Or, uh, did he? What? <laughs> I said, uh, or did he? He might have done that on Withers' teeth. Oh, oh, I see. Yeah. I see what you mean. Oh, but I didn't, Governor. He said that I didn't. Now, okay, you Withers. keep still, you nitwit. Let me think, let me think. As a matter of fact, George, the more I think of it, the more I'm convinced it was your voice I heard. Huh? Quite a vigorous quarrel. Something about the uh, curate... Guilting your sister. Don't be ridiculous, Smollett. <laughs> Very well, Princey. If he didn't do it, who did? Yes, that's what I'd like to know. How about it, Mr. Princey? Yes, that is, is a sticker, sticker all right. <laughs> George, my boy, huh? it looks like you're elected. Elected? 
What do you mean? I didn't do it. Why, I never... Keep your mouth shut. I won't. I'm not going to take the blame for her. Millie did it. She did it with that mallet. I saw her do it. You could prove that. You could prove it. Well, yes, her fingerprints on the mallet, on the handle. Why, George, don't you remember when you made me touch the mallet? When you picked it up with your handkerchief? George, I'm sure you wiped that handle clean. Oh, well, yes. I could hardly expect you to remember that if you um, can't even remember killing the curate. Governor, the... I told you to keep still, George. I'm thinking. Oh, Governor, you're not going to stand there and let him <sighs> say that. I... As long as I can remember, George, oh. you've been a trial and a tribulation to me. Oh. Um... You shouldn't have done it, George. You really shouldn't have done it. Now, let's all have a cup of tea. Nothing like it in weather like this. You shouldn't have done it, George. You shouldn't have done it. Now, let's all have a nice hot cup of tea. Warms the cockles of the arse. Very good for you. Mother, where was You shouldn't have done it, son. You really shouldn't. No, George, that was definitely wrong. <laughs> I say, Princey, I think I'll have that cup of tea after all. Nothing like it in weather like this. Who knew that that's where the 1953 Warner Brothers cartoon Easy Peckins got its final lines? Here, baby doll. Now, certainly, these versions are all a travesty, completely undercutting the point of the original short story. And there's some silliness involved, like when Princey and George make Smollett grab the mallet itself instead of the handle. But still, it does raise the point as to whether Princey's carefully laid plans would really stand up to scrutiny. I'll get back to that a little bit later. For now, since we have another Hitchcock-directed episode, it's time to bring Amy Cantu back in. Amy has done all of the Hitchcock-directed episodes with me, and I hope we can continue to do that in the months ahead. So hi, Amy. Good to see you. Hey, Al. Nice to be back. Good to have you back. So I'm going to just jump right into it. What did you think of Wet Saturday? Well, not my favorite one for a couple of reasons. It was nice to see Cedric Hardwick, but I don't know. I felt like it wasn't great. Probably the, the one I like least of all of the ones I've seen, the ones he's directed. But we can talk a little bit more about why, I suppose, in a minute. Okay, well, I'm really sorry to hear that because I agree with you. <laughs> Darn, so and we don't have much just, to tell. <laughs> I was hoping that you would tell me why it was wonderful. Okay, I will tell you why it wasn't, and then maybe you can tell me if this is also the reasons you thought. It was largely static. There was 
not much going on. There wasn't much movement. And I know that the drawing room, let's talk about what happened before we actually got going. I understand that strategy. I appreciate Hitchcock rope and other things he's done have been very static in, in some regards. A lot of it was the girl. It was awful. <laughs> I hated her. The acting was just over the top. It was obnoxious. I couldn't stop looking at her and just, I was distracted by her like through the whole thing. Okay. And she was so jarring compared to everybody else. Like the brother, what was he doing there? Why was he there? I know, you know, maybe source material, but the mother was just really straight up, just regular mom. And then we have the star actor who's playing dad and the brother's nobody. And then we've got Smollett, who is John Williams. Is that his name? Yep. He's been around before. He was in the last one I did. And I, yeah. li I like him. He's real steady. He's reliable. But oh, she drove me crazy. So a part of it was that I was distracted by that. But then there's other things. So tell me what yeah. you didn't Well, like. I actually like her a lot. Oh, my God. Um, Why? Because I think she does a good acting job. Oh, my God. I mean, God. She, yeah, she drives you crazy. I think she's supposed to drive you crazy. She's a complete loose cannon. She is a complete danger to any plan that is concocted. No, that's true. <laughs> but she could have acted crazy or unreliable in a way that was believable. In in this case, it was like I just felt acting all over the place. Okay. Anyway. Yeah, I didn't I didn't feel that way. But she was not regularly an actor. She was a ballet dancer. It shows. Why? Why was she cast? Well. I, well, see, I thought she was good. So that she could just belay her way all around the couch? Because she doesn't even stand up hardly, does she? There's one really weird part where her father sends her out of the room. Yeah, And that's you right, don't yeah. even see it happen. At, yeah. at a certain point, he then says to George, George, bring Millicent back. And it's like, did she leave? Yeah. Now that you mention it, yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I guess she left because here she comes back. And when she comes back, she has this strange kind of rolling kind of walk, which I'm sure was not that actress's regular walk, which I thought was real interesting. I mean, she's just this sort of lumbering force. Well, she's you're right to the degree that everything is static. Nobody is hardly moving around except for her. Yeah. So she clearly was brought in to be all the action, I guess. But And I get it. Okay, a dancer, but... Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I guess I could just feel that she wasn't an actress. Yeah. She has like 10 credits on IMDb Does she? that are all in the 50s. Okay. And I think that she probably went back to dancing after that. One of the things she's in is an episode of Suspicion. And I thought she was, again, really good and is a totally different character. So everything she's doing in this show is a choice. It's either her choice or it's Hitchcock's choice. And, you know, and you... <laughs> You didn't like the choice. No, no. But. See, that's just it. I felt that she was, okay, first of all, I've got an issue with the hysterical female thing. I mean, okay. this, is, this is also a thing, you know, this is a Hitchcock. If it was his decision, I think I kind of get it. And if he was trying to get a non-actor who was a dancer to do an interpretive kind of action thing, I get the, maybe the impetus behind that, but I don't. It didn't feel authentic to me. Now, I'll give you this. I'll say that I have seen other hysterical female. I'm, I'm holding my hands up and doing quotes right here. Hysterical females in the 1950s or 40s, and they're often ridiculous, over the top, not believable, but also part of that whole acting kind of trope that they did back then. And, you know, you're glad that then there are actresses who don't do that 
after this period of time. But maybe this is it too. I couldn't stop watching her. I kept wondering what she was going to do. And it sounds like you're saying, yeah, it's, that's a good thing. Yeah, I thought it was a good thing. <laughs> she is. She's like dangerous throughout the whole thing. And she's primal. And she's, okay, and she's primal. I'll give sensual you that. in terms of everything being emotions and senses with her. There's a moment near the end where she comes back. And she's like shoveling these sandwiches mm-hmm. into her mouth. I know. You know. She's all just that. I mean, that's what she is. She's just this force through the whole thing. But it's this out of control force. But it's one thing, Al, to like be primal and sensual and another thing to be completely not believable. Okay. All right. Well, we have to disagree on that. because right, we'll I have didn't, I didn't feel like she was unbelievable. There was an episode of Roald Dahl's Tales of the Unexpected where they did this same story. And it also was done as a radio show back in the 40s several times. And I feel like this actress, Kita Purdom, was the best of all of them, actually. So maybe that's, it's a So I think it might thing. be part of the character built into the whole story. Well, the other thing is it did play off of the dad. I mean, he's just abusive. He's, yeah. he's awful. And you feel like, you know, the mother's just kind of, oh, okay, I guess this is how our family is. She's just sort of accepting it all. She's nobody, you know, she's just, it's milk toast. But the juxtaposition was there, I'll give you that. She yeah. seemed messed up and certainly a, a dad like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the thing I'm most interested in talking about, and I know this is another Hitchcock thing, This is he does this all the time, but there's all this stuff that happens before the show even starts. All of the action, the killing of the the main person happens before this even starts. And then it's just everybody sitting on the couch and talking about it through most of it. And then there's Hitchcock talking about what happened afterwards (laughs) in his usual way. Yeah. What did you make of that? It's very bloodless. It's very bloodless and it's sort of static. But it's also really cold-blooded. Yes, it's It's very very cold-blooded. It's very cold-blooded. And I was wondering, is this like a censors thing? Like... We had to be silly and talk about what happened afterwards in order to compensate for it? For Hitchcock's outro, yeah. 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 Well, it's interesting because if he, I thought it was him having his cake and eating it too, or, you know, literally getting away with murder on his own show, he could have it both ways. Yeah, well, that's true too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So he does (laughs) have it both ways. Right. Yeah. Okay, so you're right, it's static, and it feels like to me, it's like a stage play. Yeah. Really, it has two sets. That's it. Yep. Okay, but don't you feel that maybe it was the camera? I felt like we needed more long shots. It was all the medium shots, or they were too close up. It was bothering me. There's a lot of close-ups, and it's an interesting choice. I think it works to some extent, but the whole episode is very unhitchcock-like. It is, it is. And it's. it felt like, well, maybe he was trying to convey a little bit of claustrophobia or something. I don't know, but I just wanted more angles or more movement or more separation between how close up we were. I something. There are some shots that are interesting, but they're interesting in sort of very subtle ways. Like what what ones are you thinking of? Well, like when Smollett has to drag the body and put it into the grate, into the sewer. The shot we get is of the body and we see Smollett's legs. We don't really see him pulling the body in. We see the body getting pulled in, which I think is interesting on one level. I mentioned this earlier in the podcast. 
because we've never seen this guy alive. Right. And the way Princey talks about him, it's like he's, he's not even human. He's just this thing. Right. And I think to some extent that shot of seeing him, as ridiculous as it is, because it looks like he has a smile on his face, yep. and he's been hit over the head several times with a mallet, and there's no <laughs> evidence of that. But as ridiculous as that is, we still finally actually get to see him. So it's sort of like he's been dehumanized, and now, oh yeah, this guy is, was a real person, and he's dead. You know? yep. And now we see him sort of slip down into the sewer. So there are things like that. They're subtle, but they're not really what you expect from Hitchcock. Well, so the other thing, as long as you brought that up, I think the fact that everything is so matter-of-fact and everybody is so... I mean, the mother is just completely blah. It could be any stock mother, like, she just sort of accepts it all. I mean, she's acting, you know, oh, oh, no, but it's not... There's no meat on the bones, you know what I'm saying? And the brother is just a sort of a cynical little snot. Yes. And the father is just straight out cold-blooded. So we don't like any of them. None of them are very human themselves. They're sort of robotic. And then again, we go back to the crazy daughter here. Yeah. Who's just over the top in the other direction. None of them are normal. None of them are human. And I get that that's maybe what he had intended here but it's when people sweat and you see the humanity those are the ones i like and it's interesting that they would cast john williams again because there was sort of a humor in back to christmas and he's got such a stock character appeal you don't really gain the sense that he's got a ton of dimension either so nobody here was very human i think is what i'm trying to say yeah I think John Williams' character is the most, he's certainly the most sympathetic. And I think in many ways he's the most human, and he comes out of it very badly. Just like Back for Christmas, I think there's an element that is supposed to be humorous. Right, right. And, And it is sort of a parody of the gentry in England. Yeah. So all of that is there, but it is also extremely cold blooded. So it's this strange sort of dichotomy of, oh, it's supposed to be sort of funny, but then it's really nasty. Well, if you look back at Back for Christmas, that was funny, but even though he kills his wife, and it's clearly, that's not funny. There was almost a lady killer's kind of thing about it, because she's messing with him, and she's asking him to do a hundred things, and, you know, there's that, but you don't get any of that in this. It goes right into crazy daughter, no sympathy with mother or son, and dad is just awful. I guess if that was all the intention, then he succeeded and making them not sympathetic and making them kind of scarily not normal, you know. Yeah, yeah. So does that complete your objections to it? Pretty much. Well, so, okay, so this is my problem with it. Generally speaking, I think all the acting is good. I think Hitchcock does a really nice job directing. It's just very different than his usual type of directing. Right. But I don't buy it. I don't buy that this would work. I'm often willing to let those sorts of things go in service of a story. But it doesn't work for me. Right. It just simply doesn't work. I don't believe for a second that this plan would ultimately work and that Smollett would just wander off and be arrested and leave it at that. Now, stories end where they end. We don't see what happens afterwards. But all Smollett has to do is 
say to the police, this happened, this happened. There are little things like they wipe off the mallet handle mm -hmm. and then they have him hold it. His fingerprints are the only fingerprints on this thing. Don't they play croquet with this? <laughs> Isn't Good it suspicious point. that the only fingerprints are this guy? It doesn't work for me. That's interesting because then you think the talking all about it at the end is, is also Hitchcock not believing really what he's done. You think that's... Yeah, or the teleplay writer, yeah. which was Marion Cockrell. One or the other. Either that or they just needed to extend the show. <laughs> it wasn't long enough. <laughs> you know, there could be some very practical reasons for it. But yeah, it, to me, it slows it way down and it makes it seem like it, it's phony. It doesn't work. Yeah, although you do see the look on the other, rest of the family's face, like, oh, I see what you're doing here. Yeah, they and so get it. if you don't get it as the audience member, you do with them then. Right, so it also is, I think, you know, playing to the audience, yeah. afraid that they won't get it otherwise. Right. And it's a nice little twist in its own way that, oh, you know, we thought it was over, Smollett is gone. No, there's one little tiny twist left. Right. So I have looked at what people have said about this episode, and most people just love it. They think it's brilliant. Really? And so I thought... Well, I'm in the minority here. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why I was hoping you'd say, oh, I love it. And then we could talk about, you Honestly, know. I really think I might have loved it if it had been, okay, if Millicent had been a different person and if it had been filmed a bit differently. I think maybe, though, I'm just partial to, I need to see somebody sweat. Okay. And nobody was sweating in this. Even... Again, like I said, John Williams is good and he's reliable, but he's also kind of the stock kind of character. And, you know, he doesn't sweat like Joseph Cotton sweats. Or what yeah. was the guy who in the show, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name, the one where he sees his doppelganger. Yeah, the case of Mr. Pelham. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. He With sweats. Tom Ewell yeah. sweats. Yeah, that's a good point. It's not only bloodless, it's sweatless. It's <laughs> exactly. We got tears, though. We don't got blood and got sweat. Got lots of tears. <laughs> and the tears I'm not buying. You were buying it, but I'm yeah. not buying her yeah. tears, you know? And John Williams, I like John Williams a lot. And I think that the give and take with Cedric Harwick and John Williams is great. But this is a really insignificant point. Because it could certainly happen. But John Williams at this time is like 50-something years old. Right. And he's courting this woman that it sounds like is much younger right so that could happen but I think it that's just why seems I, like i lost it too that's why i was confused that's why i think i was a little bit confused because i wasn't entirely certain what his role was in the relationship with the dead man and the girl I was yeah like, oh, okay yeah yes I, I think he's too old for the role yeah he's too old for the role i mean he does a great job but <laughs> So, He's better as a henpecked husband who just, it's, I'm done with this wife. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Why is it called Wet Saturday? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it rains right. all through. Isn't there something more to it than that? I mean, you know, not really that I see, except that it just sort of permeates the whole ambiance of a, the whole story. Yeah, there's rain to the whole thing. And she says, you're all wet, she says to Smollett when he comes in, and he yeah. fusses all about that. And Yeah, it's, I, I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. I don't really have an answer for that. Maybe their characters are just all wet. Isn't that kind of what we're saying? <laughs> <laughs> Could be. It's like, you know, nature reflects their moods and their movement re is reflected in nature. Yeah, yeah. But why it's particularly Saturday, I don't know. Why not rainy Saturday? Yeah, or yeah. Rainy day or 
Well, wet but blanket is what I think it should have been called. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't that bad. I think that's all I had, really. Okay. Perspective. I this wasn't my favorite, but do um, you yeah. think he's trying to take a new direction uh, with season two? Is that why this is? Is that a possibility? Have you seen quite a few? And you know, I've seen quite a few of season two, but I don't remember a lot of them, which <laughs> is not necessarily good, and it's not necessarily bad either. Yeah. There's ones from the first season that I had seen before and I didn't remember. And then watching them, I thought, oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. So I don't know what that means necessarily, but I have watched, in order to prepare for the podcast, I've watched the one after this, and I don't think much of that one either. So it's interesting that we've started the new season, and you think that they're going to put their best foot forward, and the first two I don't think are so great. Yeah. So, so we'll see. I had a chat with Jack Seabrook, who's the author of the Hitchcock Project blog, so I said, well, you're more familiar with season two than I am. So what are we looking forward to here? And he said, oh, I think you'll like it. It's good. So I'm expecting there'll be some really good ones in yeah. there. But I don't think it starts strong. Yeah. I just wanted it to be better than it was. Yeah. You know, I just wanted it to be a little bit better than it was. And I was super distracted by the female. Okay. Nurses. Well, that's, that'll do you in. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I agree. And maybe some of it is just expectation, mm -hmm. because I've just gone through 39 episodes of the first season, and some of those near the end were not great. So you get the feeling that, well, they left some of the ones that are not that great, and they pushed them to the end, right? And so I thought, well, you're starting the second season, and Hitchcock's directing. This is going to be incredible. And it has Cedric Hardwick. And it has Cedric Hardwick. Come on. And you and I agree that it just wasn't. So, Well, next time maybe we'll disagree. Yeah, in some ways it's more fun when we disagree. <laughs> well, we disagreed so. about Millicent. Jeez. Yes, we definitely disagreed about Millicent. <laughs> okay, I guess we've come to the end of the line I with guess Wet we Saturday. Wet Saturday. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, oh, I always enjoy it. We'll do it again, but uh, it might be a year from now. <laughs> yeah. Next one, Hitchcock directs is like episode 13, I think, of okay. the season. So. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, thank you, Amy. Thanks for doing this once You're again. You're welcome. You're welcome. In his review on themovieblog.com, Darren says, Wet Saturday is what you'd get if you crossed a Hitchcock murder mystery with a very British farce. It's a bit of a strange cocktail, a comedy of manners about a sordid murder. But Hitchcock makes it work, in no small part to the work of a fantastic ensemble cast. It's a rather wonderful skewering of the British class system, where social standing and the value of the family name is much more important than some trifling inconvenience like a murder. In his blog, Jack Seabrook calls it overall a strong episode of the series. And the pie lady gives it an A. But as you just heard in our conversation, Amy and I have a different opinion. I think Darren at the movie blog has it right when he says it's a rather wonderful skewering of the British class system. And the cast is uniformly excellent, with Cedric Hardwick's stolid princey, John Williams' genteel smollett, Catherine Gibney's alarmed Mrs. Princey, Jerry Barclay's smug but uncertain George, 
and Tita Purdom's manic and carnal Millicent. Hitchcock's direction here is careful and restrained. He doesn't allow his camera to overwhelm the scenes, but he does engage in some quiet, significant moments. Millicent telling her story directly to us and ending in her slow slide into her mother's lap, the murderer retreating to babyhood. The focus on Withers' body as he is dragged to the sewer, which briefly restores humanity to someone that Princey relegated to a thing. That thing, now being Smollett, reduced to a pair of legs, acting against its will. The tableau from the beginning mirrored at the end. The crisis averted and the family reset. The only real production misstep here is that use of stock music when the rain is all the music that we need. Otherwise, this is all first-class stuff. And yet, and yet, it just doesn't work for me. The short story works for me because it's too brisk to dwell on its fault lines. And here, I don't need the silly exaggeration of the radio versions to call attention to those faults. Instead, the drawn-out explanations at the end do it for me. When all is said and done, I can't get past these questions. Would there only be Smollett's fingerprints on the mallet when the croquet set belongs to the princes? Isn't that in itself suspicious? When Smollett grabs the mallet, he only holds it firmly once. Wouldn't there be some smudging if he was using it as a weapon? George hits Smollett to make it appear that he was in a struggle with Withers. But there isn't any sign of a struggle on Withers, aside from the mallet blows. Maybe Smollett was wielding the mallet without otherwise punching Withers? But if so, how did Withers manage to punch him? Princey has George plant two hairs around the buttons of Withers' coat sleeve. How is this supposed to happen? Smollett doesn't have all that much hair to begin with, and it's mostly on the top of his head. Are we supposed to assume that Withers got his buttons entangled in Smollett's hair when he was trying to punch him? It just looks too much like a setup. Princey claims he could see the body from above when he contacts the police. But what kind of sewer is this so that the body is still in sight? And even if it's still right down there, isn't it too dark to be able to see it? But all of that aside, Millicent is simply too unmoored. How could she possibly keep all this a secret unless Princey plans to lock her up in the house for the rest of her life? These sorts of flaws, these sorts of details are not supposed to distract you from the point of the story. And usually for me, they don't. But this time, they do. And if all this bothers you too, perhaps Hitchcock's outro will help as he dishes out some retribution. As we come to him, he is getting down off the shelf and he has a teacup and saucer in his hand. I presume that story was intended to illustrate that blood is thicker than water. I always find it heartwarming to see a family standing shoulder to shoulder in the face of adversity. Unfortunately, the authorities were not thrilled by this sight and were seen tossing about such phrases as obstructing justice, accessory after the fact, murder in the first degree, very nasty. The princes received substantial sentences. You see, unfortunately, Captain Smollett didn't play the game. When the police arrived, he insisted on his innocence. 
thus confusing poor Millicent to such an extent that she reenacted the crime with her father as the victim. Broke the croquet alley too. I believe I'll have another. He pours a clear liquid into his cup from a teapot. Then he takes a small pitcher and pours, but nothing comes out of it. There's no more vermouth. Oh, well. He takes an olive on a toothpick from the sugar bowl. Fortunately, I still have plenty of olives. And then there's a line missing from my DVD. While I'm sipping this, I'd like you to savor the following commercial. Alfred Hitchcock presents season two, Doris Day's Greatest Hits, featuring Kesara Sara, Suspicion, Rope, Things to Come, The Ten Commandments, The Twilight Zone, season five, Three Coins in the Fountain, and Guys and Dolls are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The Wet Saturday episode on Roald Dahl's Tales of the Unexpected, the Wet Saturday episodes of 1942, 1943, and 1948 on the Suspense Radio Program, Hitch 20, the Suspicion episodes, Fraction of a Second and Way Up to Heaven, the Bonanza episode, The Last Haircut, the Transformers clip, the Warner Brothers cartoon, Easy Peckins, and the Jungle Jim episode, The Deadly Idol, are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at sherdsmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. Next time, episode 41, Fog Closing In, starring Phyllis Thaxter and Paul Langton. That was exceedingly dry. Next week, we shall be back at the same old stand. Please drop in again. Good night.